When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Access Manchester's indie rock and roll station. Access Manchester. The Access Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester. Welcome to the Excess Long Player, classic albums discussed with the people who made them. This episode is all about The Music's eponymous debut album, and I talk about it with Adam Nutter from The Music. Released in late 2002, this was an album that did something very different sonically to the other music that was being produced around this time, and I think it really shook up the music industry at the time. Now, the music imploded back in 2011 under fairly acrimonious circumstances, which I do talk about with Adam on this interview. But more recently, in fact, just a few months before the pandemic kind of kiboshed all live music plans, they did announce they were reforming and playing a special comeback show in the hometown of Leeds. That is still going ahead at the time of making this podcast anyway and you can find all the details on their twitter accounts the music tour i really enjoyed this chat with adam and he actually said afterwards that our conversation had helped him see the achievements of the band in a whole new light which was absolutely awesome to hear so hopefully you enjoy this podcast if you do make sure you listen to the other ones in this series there are some brilliant interviews to go at and give us a follow give us a subscribe so you get the next shows as soon as they're ready plus if you enjoy it leave me a comment write a review on itunes Tell me exactly what you make of these shows. As long as it's good, obviously. Don't want to hear the negative stuff. So let's crack on. This is Adam Nutter from The Music talking about their debut album, The Music. How are we doing, Adam? I'm very well, thank you for having me on, mate. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for coming on. So I want to go right back to the beginning for this one, if that's okay. I want to go back to before the album was a thing before the contracts got signed, because mm. even at that stage, in the very early beginnings of the band, there seems to have been a real buzz around you and what you were doing. I think you were described as the best unsigned band in the country. Yeah, did, Steve Lamack, yeah. Steve Lamack was that. You did a yeah, limited yeah. release for Take the Long Road and Walk It, which was pretty much impossible to get hold of from the day of release, and it became a real rarity. Yeah. Did it feel at that stage that it was inevitable that you guys as a band were going to take over the world? Well, I mean, it certainly felt like that at that time. We had, you know, sort of from the moment we became involved in the prospect of it becoming serious, if you will, we had great management who were very clever about how they sort of orchestrated um, how we went about things, if you know what I mean. And the, mm. the principal idea of that was to create a buzz 
So when we were discovered in in a sense, we weren't sort of thrown straight into the the music industry straight away. We were held back for for like a, a good two years, really finishing studies and things like that, and also you know learning what we were doing and writing more songs. But along along that time period, we were doing really sort of little cool things, like we had a, a Christmas party in Leeds at the Hi Fire Club, which was like you know like a and we had Tim Burgess DJing and a couple of other people. And we did little cool nights like that. And it, as you say, it started to build this buzz. And then by the time we came to to do our first, you know, real tours, even in the real small venues, they were selling out instantly. And, you know, the rooms were just absolutely jam-packed. And of course, this is all before the record came out. Mm. So that was the idea. The idea was to send us up and down the country, playing these little venues, getting as many, you know, getting as many people in as possible that were just buzzing off it. And then that that word spread. So it kind of felt normal to us. It, you know, like like I've talked about on my own podcast, it felt like it was just what happened when you were in a band, you know what I mean? And you kind of, you've got a management company and then the prospect of a record contract and all those things. And But yeah, it was obviously, as you can imagine, an absolutely wild ride. Even though it kind of progressed over two years, it, it sort of got to the point where there was always really exciting things happening and really exciting things being talked about and you know this label's interested or you you know they want yeah, yeah. to support you and things like that so yeah it, it certainly felt like a natural rise at the time and, and as I say it was very exciting. Was there any frustrations at that time then because it sounds like the record label were almost almost holding you back whilst this buzz generated itself that you weren't being kind of let loose you weren't being allowed to go and make this debut album? That's an interesting question, actually. And I think the answer is yeah, to put it simply. I think I think the answer was yes. You know, sort of looking back on it now, I can perfectly understand why. I, I can understand why we went about it like that. And frustration for me is it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you channel it properly. And we channeled it into making sure that when, when the management and the label and everyone were like, right, okay, you know, now you're ready. You know, we wanted to have as many cool tunes as we wanted but you know the other thing to, to to bear in mind is the management and the record label wanted to keep us very insulated from any outside influence really including them and that's why you know we stayed up in Leeds in our practice room in the basement of Soundworks and we were just in there you know um, every day working on these songs to try and be kept away from any of the machine as you call it in terms of the people who were going to be involved in in, in sort of me- moving the record you know we were we were very much left alone to actually write the songs and get all of that ready. And that's how we channeled that frustration. What do you remember about day number one, finally being let into the studio and the moment that, that someone's going, right, this is the day you're going to start recording your debut album. How did you feel at that stage? What do you remember from those moments? Again, you know, those those moments were absolutely brilliant. And looking back on them now, probably even more so, but certainly at the time, as you've talked about the frustration and things and being held back, it was, it was very much like, all right, here we go. Do you know what I mean? Let's, and and I think once you're in those moments, I don't know, I feel it's kind of very rare to, to be able to stand there and appreciate it quite how you would have done if you'd have been given it two years ago. If Mm. you know what I mean anyway, because there's been such a natural progression with how we were 
eased into things. So it, it would there was never any there was never any massive jump. It was just like going up lots of little stairs until you got to the top, rather than trying to jump five or six at once. That's yeah. kind of how it felt. And as a result, we were very grounded, but we were also very determined. Like right, as you say, now is the time we get to go into this studio. Um, can't remember exactly how long we were in uh, Jacobs, which is where we recorded it. But, uh, you know, as you can imagine, day one in there, just absolute. I mean, we'd been in big studios before because we'd done EPs. So, you know, we'd been in Townhouse with Lenny Frankie and things like that, which is a great studio. But Jacobs was a residential studio in a, you know, in a, um, a lovely country setting. And it was a brilliant summer as well. As we talked about on my podcast, actually, when we had Jim Abbas, the producer on, we, we were sort of reminiscing about the perfect weather we had. Every day, we were just scorching, you know what I mean? And the, there was a swimming pool in back garden. And it was, you know, it was a massive country house with two working studios in it. And, you know, at the time, there was people like Daniel Beddingfield was actually in the other, other studio making his <laughs> record at the time. And uh, Oxide and Neutrino, actually, I believe, wow. were also... Yeah, I think ben, uh, Daniel was in there for a couple of weeks and then he'd finished and obviously because we were making a lot uh, record so we were in there for quite a while but yeah then oxide and neutrino came in so you know like that scene was emerging at the same time as our sort of scene in inverted commas was emerging i, I, I suppose yeah why was the music clusters so exciting at this time as a band in terms of the buzz that was generated before after the album came out it was heralded as something groundbreaking something different what was it that you had that maybe other bands didn't at that particular time that's a very interesting question i think that it's difficult to answer in in sort of one answer really but i think we were the sort of when you refer to the right band at the right time in terms of what had come before us, really. And, I mean, it's subjected to say about how sort of stale certain aspects of music had become, do you know what I mean? You had sort of big mainstream bands that were just dominating everything and you knew who everyone was, but it was all of a, you know, these are some songs and this is what they sound like. And I think we came from a very different place in terms of channeling energy rather than trying to be cool or trying to trying to say anything that was too... I don't know, too clever even, do you know what I mean? We were just channeling energy, uh, frustration, anger, you know, within our own personalities, which again is something that's explored at length on my on the, on the podcast, Music and More, because we've had Robert on, we've had everyone on to discuss the finer points of um, how we were using our music at that time to channel our personalities as they were developing, do you know what I mean? Because mm. this record we're talking about, we, we we were writing when we were 16, do you know what I mean? So as you can imagine, you've got a lot of a lot of stuff going on in your life at that point in, in your head. And that's what we did is we channeled that into that music. And I think you hit the nail on the head where you said it was something different. And also, you know, we, we carried quite swell in Japan when that record came out, because again, and I think it's sort of indicative of the, the music they appreciate over there, but the high energy, the dance beats, the, you know, I mean, the guitarists, I think, and, and Robert's voice, I think all those things came together to, to form something that a hell of a lot of people got behind at the time and it felt like a movement and the people who were coming to the gigs were, you know, we were all dressed the same and we were just kind of one of the people in that sense, you know, one, another one of the people in the room that were enjoying the music. And that is why, you know, I, I started all the podcasts and my YouTube and stuff is to effectively, and Twitter and any of the socials is to effectively share in the excitement of that. And that's resulted in the fact that we're actually doing a reunion show June, 2022, 
at Temple News and Park in Leeds. Yeah, the 2nd of June, we are, we're doing a, a reunion show, which will also coincide with the 20th anniversary of the release of that record, actually. So as you can imagine, that's something we're all absolutely thrilled about because, and you know, I know I keep saying this, but as again, as has been detailed in the podcast, we, <laughs> when we kind of split up, we didn't talk for a long time. Do you know what I mean? And that, I think that became a barrier between any of us individually appreciating the things that we've done in terms of the music we'd made. Do you know what I mean? So to yeah. reconnect with all the lads and sort of open the door to all those memories that we kind of all shut away has been a massively joyous experience. Yeah. Music and More with Adam Nutter is the full name of the podcast. We should let people know where it is so they can go and find it nice and easily. When they finish listening to this one, of course, you mentioned how you're channeling yourself into these songs. You're 16 years old, you're in the studio. When you listen back to the album now, you kind of, 20 years on, as you say, mm-hmm. how do you react to... I'm, I'm trying to put myself in this position because obviously I wasn't in a band at the age of 16, but I imagine if I saw the things I was channeling myself into at that time, be it, I don't know, a diary or whatever, it'd be very difficult to remove myself emotionally mm-hmm. from that stuff and view it objectively. Do you find the same with when you listen back to the music that you created? Yeah, definitely. You know, the first album, just as soon as that's on, I'm just back to being 18 again. You know <laughs> what I mean? And feeling all the things that I were feeling really. And all I would ever try to do were express myself. And I think that's true of everyone else. So it is a, a difficult question to answer really, but the emotions that we were all channeling, I think that, you know, a lot of them will still be there. It's just the fact that we've matured enough to look back and appreciate it. And it was interesting to, we did a, a listening party actually with Tim Burgess. And again, that was the first time that any of us four had listened back to that first album in over a decade mm. and the emotions came flooding back it was a really emotional experience for all of us that and that that's why i think that tim's twitter listening part is a such a magical thing to be involved in because it connects so many people at once and and the reaction to that record getting a listening part it was massive so yeah listening back to it it certainly evokes all the sort of same emotions that i felt at the time but the beauty is now we've kind of rebuilt our relationships. It's all positive. Whereas there was a time, I mean, look, when we, when we split up, I didn't listen to, I didn't listen to any music for a decade. Well, nine years, I didn't listen to anything because I found it too painful and it just reminded me of what had happened. So mm. it was a difficult thing to even reflect on for myself. But now in this position, like I say, having rebuilt relationships, it's, it's just nothing but a celebration and, re- and really joyous. I do want to talk about the split. Even though we're focusing on the debut album, I think we need to touch on the split in a little bit. But before we do, just returning to the album, when it was released, got to number four in the album charts, which was pretty phenomenal. Do you remember what was above it in the charts? What beat you to the top spot? Oh, that's a very good question. I can't quite remember. No, but I'm presuming you might know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I was getting Coldplay, Rush of Blood to the Head was number one. Number two was Eva Cassidy's album. Number three was Sugar Babes. Right, man. They were the three that beat you to the top spot. I mean, that is, I've, I've never, I mean, I forgot it got to number four for a start and I've never thought about it in the context of what sort of company we were keeping in terms of, you know, popularity. It's, it's nuts, really. You know, it's really, you know, it makes you quite emotional thinking about that, really. You know, I, 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 I honestly have never thought about it in that sort of context. That's fascinating. Yeah, alongside some pretty household names there, even kind of fast forwarding mm. to the modern day. I do remember the reception of the album. It was kind of, for for a lot of people, it was a bit of a jaw drop moment. It was, what is this? As you touched on before, it was something fresh, something brand new. I do remember, and I've looked back into this, 
in the context of this interview, looking at back at some reviews, one of the few criticisms that the album had was it felt a little bit too polished, a little bit too produced. It wasn't raw enough. How do you feel about the album looking back on it now? Do you like the way it's presented? Is there anything that you'd go, well, I'd do that differently now with the benefit of 20 years? To be honest, the only thing that I do with certain bits is make them a bit dirtier. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like sort of how I was approaching guitar and stuff like that. I know what people are saying, but one thing that we felt very strongly about and sort of Phil's influence in a big way, you know, bringing things like DJ Shadow and Uncle and that vibe and sort of drum and bass and dance beats, we were quite headstrong. And that's why we worked with Jim Abbas at the time, obviously because he had that pedigree of working with Uncle and DJ Shadow and, and Massive Attack and people like that and all the kind of trip hop people that Jim worked with that's specifically why we went with Jim and we really enjoyed that injection of your dance staples like your your 808s and your 303s and things like that that are a nod to acid house basically and we were really giddy about that so I mean I suppose what you have to sort of take into account which obviously we all do everyone I suppose has their their own projection in the mind of how they envisage something and how it could have been if you know what i mean and, and that that record you could maybe take into that category i don't know i i i understand totally what you're saying and it's something that i've heard because going on twitter and interacting with lots of fans you know I talk, i'm very open on twitter i talk to anyone and mm. uh, i've had some quite frank discussions with people who were like oh yeah i love your first record not so keen on that or whatever <laughs> um, yeah nice honestly, man. yeah <laughs> oh yeah man yeah that that happens all the time but it's fine man you know what I mean? Because the, I suppose our profile in respect of all three albums was, you know, it was very different at the times they were released. And as, as you've just alluded to, being number four in the charts at the time on the release of the first album is, you know, it's quite a big deal, really. And that's why obviously more people are going to have connected with that record. But yeah, man, yeah, it's a great record. Definitely. Let's focus on the positives for a second. Pick me a couple of favourite tracks or even moments from the album. It doesn't even have to be a track. It can be a little part of a certain song that when you do listen to it because i'm sure you've had to revisit these songs for the mm. reunion as you say like going yeah. back out on tour what really stands out for you when you go back to this album now well i love the moments of musicality as i'd call them do you know what i mean like for example too high and the way that too high builds and develops and culminates in phil going absolutely nuts on the drums and the sort of hard stops that we do right towards the end of too high i think just show how effortlessly we played together as musicians those moments always bring a massive smile to my face and like the end of the people as well and i can't remember if we draw it out on the record as much as we used to do live but there's there's just moments uh, like disco do you know what i mean disco in its entirety is just like an advertisement for for a group of musicians who were just completely in tune with each other because you know we never as i've, as I've spoke about before we never talked about that song we never decided how it was going to start and how it was gonna progress that was just a jam that we played over and over until it, it it's it's form fell together you know what i mean and that's the beauty of how we used to write songs really and i suppose in reality at the moments you're talking about are the entire record for me you know like mm. every bit of every song i can listen back to and be, i have um i have a ridiculously good memory for the majority of things going back a long way so when i listen to to our music i can go back instantly through all the stages of its creation from its inception from a jam whether that came from my riff or stu's bass line or a drum beat or a lyric i can you know i can remember its inception right the way through to 
the varying moments where you're like, oh, this is getting better. Or even the ones that were just out of the blue. Do you know what I mean? Like things like Long Road where I kind of had that riff and I just started playing it and everyone started doing the thing. And moments like that where you can remember actually being a kid and standing there and thinking, wow, this is really going to excite them guys in London. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah, those moments certainly stand out for me whenever I whenever I listen back to it. All right, I'm going to put you to the test then. In that case, Adam, having said that, I'm going to pick my favourite track off the album, which is "The Truth Is No Words." Mm-hmm. Take me through it from from beginning to end. Tell me the story. That's another example of what comes out of practicing in the in the practice room, and that will have been from memory. That was kind of, we had that groove. I had that riff and. Now, it would be a debate about whether I had that riff before the rhythm was going on. But in the majority of cases, it was either my riff that I started playing where Phil and Stu joined in or Phil and Stu had a groove going and I'd kind of walk in the room and go, oh, yeah, I like this. But either either one of those, we played around that riff loads and loads and loads and Stu developed the bass line and, you know, Phil with that sort of unique skip he's got in the drum beat and, mm. and Rob's vocals, which, you know, in terms of our music was always like another instrument, really. Not so much concentrated on delivering a message as such. I mean, it, it does, but it's much more, like I say, conveying emotions yeah. um, is Rob's voice. So, yeah, truth, that was just a jam. Like the majority of tracks on that first record, that were just a jam that we pulled together. And it's interesting, actually, because it's quite different. That's probably one of the most different truths in terms of how it sounds on the record and then kind of how we do it live. It's a little bit more low-key on the record, but I love the the groove of that song and the vocals, like I say, the vocals were insane. I love the drop as well. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And that's something that we had a lot of in our songs due to, obviously, again, Phil's influence. The dance side of things, obviously, that's huge in dance culture you know builds and drops and things like that so yeah that it's a good example it's truth it's a it's a great tune man i love the cover art of this album as well really striking and every time i look at it i think of new order and i don't quite know why obviously you're not a manchester band you come from across the pennines but i think i can hear new order influences in your music are they in the mix of the of bands course. that kind of have influenced you yeah of course man definitely without doubt without doubt new order joy division as well do you know what i mean and I've, I, to be honest, that's a, an artistic relationship I've always found fascinating between the output of Joy Division and then obviously consequently New Order. But yeah, mm. all of us hugely influenced by by those um, two great bands. Do you know what I mean? And the cover art, I think I get what you're saying because New Order have always kind of gone that same way, which I would just, don't know how to def- define it really, just sort of um, cool, striking and iconic. And you're writing what you're saying that, the art sort of campaign, if you want to call it that, surrounding that record was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And it was, it was one of, it was Tony Perry, actually one of our managers that kind of secured that situation for us. Because at the time, obviously, Rob and Nick Carter were emerging. Uh, they had profile, but I don't, you know, obviously now they're absolutely enormous. So at the time, Tony, our manager, was actually at an, um, an exhibition, I believe, and saw the artwork. And it was at the time that our record was coming together and he had sort of a brainwave where, and he went straight over to the artists and said, would you be interested in effectively allowing us to use these images for our art campaign for, okay. for this album. Oh, so it wasn't and something think, that was specifically designed. It was something that was seen and that kind of matched up almost. Yeah, effectively. And I think if Tony, if I remember correctly, um, Robin Nick Carter effectively said, well, yeah, if you buy one. And then, but I think they were, <laughs> I think they were quite high. I think they were 2000 pounds or something. And, 
Tony said, oh, my wife's going to kill me, but I just had to do it, do you know what I mean? Because it, to secure the right to, to use that art across the entirety of the campaign, you know, it just, it, everyone knew what it was. And that, to, it, I'd be fascinated to have known where it would have got to in, in the charts and things like that if it, if it had a different art campaign. Because I remember being young and going into town and seeing the billboards, and you know, that the circle just plastered everywhere at the mm. point of different releases of the singles. You know what I mean? You had Long Road, the people, Getaway, Truth, all with their own different colour circle. And then obviously the multicolour circle for the album. It's just absolutely perfect. Still the days that you'd walk into a our price or a virgin megastore or whatever as well isn't it and you'd see you'd see artwork and you'd be drawn to certain bits yeah. of music because of the artwork so yeah. yeah clearly an important part of the puzzle this wasn't the end of the story by any means there were three albums in total two albums that followed the music but i can't talk to you without talking about the end of the band because mm -hmm. there was a certain mystery around what happened to the band when it dissolved, when you guys went your separate ways. And it's it's built into the excitement of your return as well, I think, and these reformation yeah. shows that are coming up later in this year. So what can you tell us about how it did end? What light can you shed on the, the end of the music? Well, I mean, I think in a... In a simple way, for people to sort of understand contextually, we were burnt out. We'd been doing it since we were 16, effectively. And as soon as I finished my A-levels, it was bang, straight out on the road and going to Japan and things like that. We didn't stop for a long time because we were a victim of our own success in a sense that the first album did so well globally as well, not just in this country, you know, Japan, Australia, all kinds of people um, and places wanted to get us there. And, you know, it was very much the belief of our label, it also as our entirety in terms of the management and things that, you know, when you're hot, you, you don't say no. Do you know what I mean? When people want you. So effectively, we toured that first record for three years. Do you know what I mean? Which from the age we went out at around 18, you know, it's pretty important years in your life. And it's a very strange alien environment to even mature at that early stage in. So there's no doubt that the first record and the campaign, uh, the touring campaign that followed it, took a hell of a lot out of us. And the, 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 to reflect on it, the real difficult thing is the fact that, you know, we weren't really able to create in that environment, in the touring environment, because we needed to be, you know, chilling out in a room, just playing whenever we wanted, not forced to have 40 minutes writing in a sound check or try and write, you know, the back of a bus on acoustics. It's not how we worked. Do you know what I mean? We made a lot of noise and got off on it and made other people get off on it. But it took a lot out of us. And when we came to do the second album, it was a very, well, it was a different musical landscape for one. You know, the economics of things, not that, you know, you want to think about that too much, but there's no doubt that that played a role. And we, the second album was a and very much by the American label so we went to america to do it with an american producer and things which you know and we don't get me wrong we love that record and i love that record and i hold it in as high esteem as any of them as i do all three but that was again that was difficult because we'd we'd spent a lot of time in america already and that had taken it out of us then sort of spending nine weeks there making the record that was difficult and then we toured that and I think I think if you want to look at it, really, I think we just ran out of steam in terms of how we worked. And as we'd got bigger, there were too many barriers in the way of what made us great, which was having the time to form these ideas and just 
smash them out, do you know what I mean? And play them at a few gigs and decide how they're going to run. Yeah, I'd say I'd say we we burnt out, really, and we'd spent a lot of time with each other since we were 16. Our personal relationships, while they hadn't... Um, it's not like we fell out, but I'm sure you know yourself from the age of 16 to 27 or 28, you, you know, you're very different people. You want different things from life. Your, your personalities, your characters are just in ways that can unfortunately inevitably make you incompatible with each other, which, you know, the, the, there could be a, a well be an element of truth to that. But yeah, I mean, again, like, like I said on my podcast, we've talked about it at, at great sort of forensic length, which, which was really therapeutic actually for, <laughs> for me and for Rob. We're, we're just really happy to have the relationships back on track and be able to celebrate things by doing, by doing this reunion show. Is that, Adam in his late thirties talking, or is that Adam in his late twenties talking? Like, did you clock that those were the reasons at the time, or is that something that you've kind of been able to realise having that space and that distance yeah. and being able to step back? Of course, yeah, yeah. That is probably that's me talking now. At the time, it was well, it was it was incredibly painful at a level that's difficult to talk about, really, because well, obviously, it meant everything to me, the music. It was incredibly traumatic to not have it anymore. Do you know what I mean? And obviously, it, it was the music only exists when the four people that make it up decide it does. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And if someone if someone doesn't want to be involved in it anymore, it's it's not going to exist. It will only ever be us four. So yeah, to to not have that in my life anymore was was really difficult. And like I say, as a result, I. Um, effectively turned my back on music entirely and fell into a bit of a pit of despair, to be honest, which I've only just been lifted out of by the recent events over the last, well, it's, it'll be coming up for 12 months now um, that I've been kind of doing what I'm doing. And as a result of which I'm now making two solo records as well, uh, which I'm really, really excited about. So, you know, I'm sort of, I'm back in music now that I've had the time, as you say, to reflect on what really happened and remove any sense of blame that I was maybe trying to unfairly put on different people for just wanting to move forward with their lives. And that's what I think is probably the take-home message really is that different people wanted to move forward in their lives in different ways and that which everyone is perfectly entitled to do. And I don't think I realised how broken it was at the time that it kind of, we went our separate ways. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. like you say, reflecting on that, it's much easier to give everyone the space they deserve to have done what they did. And it's great to hear that it's now looking more positive for yourself and for your relationships with the other guys in the bands as well. You've mm. got the reunion gigs, so it's the 2nd of June, 2022. Obviously, it's had the same kibosh put on it that the uh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of things have over the last year or so. Brilliant yeah. undercard as well. You've got the Cribs playing, Coral playing. One of my favourite newer bands, the Snuts, are on that bill as well. What does this mean for the music as an entity? Is this kind of one final hurrah you say you've got your own solo stuff to concentrate on is it a full stop is it the beginnings of something new potentially or is it just too early to say at the moment i think the fourth one i think i think too early to say at the moment would be the best answer there we are having not really spoken or interacted much if at all for 10 years we, you know we're still 
feeling our way around our new relationships, really, because we've come together as much more mature individuals. So the way we've approached this, because we were, I'm not being, you know, to be absolutely frank, we were terrified when this became a a concept that might actually happen. We were terrified, (laughs) Uh, me, me and Rob, me and Rob probably especially, you know, terrified about getting up on stage and actually playing again, whether we could actually do it. You know, I'd, I've been a gardener for seven years. I didn't even know if my hands would still be up for playing guitar. Luckily, <laughs> I'm, you know, I didn't play guitar for 10 years. And when all this happened and uh, we started talking again, I picked up the guitar after 10 years. I got it out of cupboard. Uh, well, you know, wow. one of 14 that I've got in the cupboard. But anyway, I got it, got it out and just I thought, I'm just going to try and play this. And I was instantly better than I was before. I was better than I was 10 years ago when I used to play every hour of every day instantly. And I just thought, oh, that must be my hands getting stronger from gardening or something honestly so <laughs> I, I would oh yeah and that, i buzzed off that so much that that's what started my you know i'll call it my campaign on twitter really which is every day for god knows how long i did a new riff video and i was revisiting all the old riffs that i'd written in the music and i were playing them for people and putting like a little uh, 50 second clip on twitter which you know they're all still there going back coming up for, for 12 months i think it was june june last year think it was yeah so it will be coming up for 12 months when when all that started yeah adam absolute pleasure to talk to you mate i'm excited for the return of the music seeing what comes next hearing your solo stuff and really enjoyed taking a look back at what is undeniably a classic album in your debut from the music thank you very much i've really enjoyed it too and as i say thank you very much for thinking of me and us for this show thank you very much more than welcome mate Access Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester. That's it for today's Access Long Player. If that interview with Adam Nutter has inspired you to go back and listen to the music's debut in full, you'll find a link to that album in the podcast description, the Spotify link, so you can go and listen to it in full. If it's an album you've not dipped into for a while, I recommend you do, because it's an absolute belter. Cheers for your ears. If you enjoyed this, do click subscribe, do click follow, and we'll let you know when the next episodes are out. This is part of season two, but we're going to be releasing these shows weekly very, very soon. So hopefully I'll see you next time. Access Manchester.